for the reading of God's Word on which the sermon is based. John chapter 1, verse 14 through to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Friends, if you are new with us, we are going through a new series from the Gospel of John. And I would like to start by telling you a story of a young man who had a conversation with his pastor. His pastor was uh, explaining to him about the Gospel. And after a while, he said, I can't possibly believe all the stuff that you just said. And so the pastor asked, so what would it take you to believe? And he said, I would believe if God actually comes down and stands in front of me and tells me himself. And then the pastor said, my friend, he actually has already come down. He came down 2,000 years ago and live among us. And if you do not believe that, then I have nothing better to offer you. That's what John essentially tells us in these few verses, and especially verse 14. It becomes the climax of the entire prologue, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Because in that very first, it reveals to us that Jesus became human, he lived among us, and he invites us to himself. There's a lot of things that can be said about that verse, but I would like to focus on three things today. The first one is the meaning of the word became flesh, and then we're going to see the wrong response to it and the right response to it. Let's uh, look at the first one. The first point, the meaning of the word became flesh. It obviously points to what Christians call the doctrine of incarnation. Incarnation means, and I give you the uh, definition on the screen, the second person of the Trinity, of the triune God, God the Son, became human without ceasing to be God. I think that's a good definition of incarnation. The word became flesh literally means the infleshing of the word. The son who is in eternal relation with the father and the spirit willingly humbled himself and chose to assume a human nature in obedience to his father and for our salvation. And that's why we said that he is 100% God and 100% human. Now, I don't agree with everything that Eugene Peterson uh, wrote, paraphrasing the New Testament, but when he came to John 
1.14, this is what he wrote, and it's beautiful. He wrote, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. For 33 years, God moved into our cul-de-sac. He walked down our streets. So the incarnation is not the act of subtraction, but actually the act of addition. It's not like Jesus set aside his deity and he stopped being God, but he added to his divine nature a human nature consisting of body and soul. That's what uh, the Christian believes about incarnation, about the word becoming flesh. It's not Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's not multiple personality disorder. So Jesus is not a human with divinity or God with humanity. He is God-man. I don't know if you noticed the background that we uh, have on, on the screen here. It's, so every week we have uh, ICC artists who draw this beautiful artwork for the purpose of our enjoyment to help us to reflect and focus on the sermon and the theme for the week. And today, this is such a powerful artwork to depict the sermon topic, The Word Became Flesh. It's made by Catalia. And what's interesting is that John did not just write the word became man, but the word became flesh. I think that was intentional to show us that when our Lord became incarnate, he took upon himself nothing less than our whole nature, consisting of a real body and real soul. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, said Romans 8.3, yet he knew no sin. In fact, Jesus was made sin for us, and yet he knew no sin. So friends, when Apostle John said that the word became flesh, his glory did not diminish. He did not cease to be God. See, other kings were initially babies, and then they became adults before they were crowned king. Some waited so long to become king, like King Charles, right? He's, what, 74 years uh, this year, and recently coronated. But Jesus was already king before he became a baby. And the phrase tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, is also a very unique phrase. Because John could have written the word live among us, but instead he said, he tabernacled or he pitched a tent. That's the literal meaning of the word dwelt among us. It is use of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness before the temple was built. And Moses met God in that tent of meeting. And this is in Exodus 33, verse 9. And Moses would hear God speaking to him. 
Then he would, uh, God would give uh, Moses his laws written on two stone tablets. But now John, Apostle John is telling us that God's word, his self-expression has become flesh. So now we people of God, we can meet God and hear him in the flesh of Jesus through his word. So the human flesh of Christ was the tabernacle of God. By linking the tabernacle and seeing Jesus' glory, John wants us to make the connection. And here is the connection. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people, manifested his glory. Jesus is also God with us. He is Emmanuel. And just as the tabernacle was the center of the Israelites' camp, Christ is to be at the center of our lives, of our church. And just as sacrifices and worship were offered at the tabernacle, Jesus is our complete and final sacrifice, and we have access to God through Him and Him alone. So that's what it means when John said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what are we to make of it? Well, let me tell you the wrong response first before we get to the right response. That's my second point. Let me address the elephant in the room. A lot of modern people today, they could not accept Christ, believe in his name, because of the notion of virgin birth. I mean, the word became flesh, and he was born of Virgin Mary. That's a myth, right? Let me share with you a philosophical argument that's called A for theory. In philosophy, there's a way of arguing called A for theory. It means making an argument from the greater to the lesser, or vice versa, but typically from the greater to the lesser. This is an argument that has been used in the Bible a few times. For example, in Romans 8.32, when Paul said, if God gave us Jesus to die on the cross for our sake, surely he can keep us and protect us until he comes back. Or when someone did not believe me that I can cook steam fish like the whole fish, you know, I would make an argument, um, something to this effect. You know, I actually did complete my PhD. I um, uh, did not have any kids when I started my PhD and when I finished my PhD, I had two kids. <laughs> and then the ICC Melbourne was also started during the PhD so I could complete my PhD and you don't think I could cook the whole Paramandi Cantonese style? So that's R for theory argument. So using the same argument, if we do believe that God, the God of the Bible, created the entire universe, is it not completely odd if we do not believe that God can perform miracles? If God can decorate the sky with millions of stars, isn't it a trivial matter to, for God to place a micro seed in the womb of a virgin so that she can conceive without having an intimate relationship 
with a man. For God, nothing is impossible. That's basically what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 2. But what is the alternative, right? If you don't believe that miracle, that, that virgin birth miracle, what's the alternative? In July 2011, 12, 12 years ago, I remember attending a debate at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall, about 200 meters from this building. I don't know if any of you uh, were there, but there was a debate called, is there a God? And on the Christian side, there was this uh, professor who's really well known for his apologetics. His name is John Lennox. And on the other side was Professor Peter Singer one of the world's most influential atheists. And at some point during that debate, Lennox asked Singer, where do we come from? And Singer replied, well, we can assume that somehow in the primeval soup, we got collections of molecules that became self-replicating. Actually, I have that on the screen. Somehow in the primeval soup, we got collection of molecules that became self-replicating, and I do not think we need any miraculous or mysterious explanation. To which uh, Lennox gently remarked, but how can molecules that separate in a primitive soup not be considered a mysterious explanation itself? It is as mysterious as the virgin birth. So his explanation does not really help. Because we live in a world full of mysteries. So it's not a matter of whether we believe in a virgin birth, but which virgin birth we choose to believe in. See friends, if you cannot accept that God does not make sense to you, that really means, what you're saying is, I want a God who is never wiser than me. Because if God makes total sense to you, he won't be big enough to solve your problems. If God makes sense to you, like complete sense, then he won't be wise enough to know how he can grow you through your problems. See, if you are in big trouble, you go to this God that you have in your mind, he would say something like, well, there's nothing I can do that you haven't done. There's nothing I can propose that you haven't thought of before. So this kind of God will not work in mysterious ways because you understand all his plans. And in the end, you will not worship him in adoration because you are on par with him. And you do not want a God like that. So that's why we should accept that a big God, an indescribable God, can work his ways through things that we don't understand. And in the history of the church, there are so many teachings that were also 
showing the wrong responses to the fact that the word became flesh. And I'm not going to uh, bore you with the details, but these were some of the more um, popular heresies, if you like, um, in, the, in the church uh, history. And some of them said that Jesus wasn't really a man, he just looked like a man. And others said that he had a, uh, the body of a man, but he did not have a human soul. And still others said that Jesus was two people in one body, sort of half God and half man. And some said that that's all nonsense. Uh, Jesus wasn't God at all. But you see what's genius about John 1.14 is that with that one verse, all these four heresies were actually addressed, and I would say addressed sufficiently, necessarily. Because John 1.14, when John said, the word became flesh. He essentially said that divine and human natures were united truly, were united perfectly, were united in undividedly and unmixedly. And practically that addresses all these false teachings. If you're interested in any of this, uh, I'll be happy to discuss with you. But these are all the wrong responses to the notion that the word becoming flesh, something that they can't uh, accept, and they try to come with some alternate version of reality. So what's the right response then? The right response, which is my last and uh, third point, can be seen in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, the glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me start, uh, and there are several uh, key words there, but let me start with this uh, understanding of glory. What, is, what does it mean, the glory of God? It's one of those overused phrases that Christians like to throw around. I live for the glory of God, I work for the glory of God, I study for the glory of God, my marriage is for the glory of God, but what does it really mean? There's a guy called David Van Drunen in his book, God's Glory Alone. He surveyed the notion of God's glory in the writings of Reformed theologians and concluded that the few, uh, the best few that best reflects the, the biblical truth of what God glory is all about come from a theologian called Herman Baffing, and he defined the glory of God as follows. It's the splendor and brilliance that is inseparably associated with all of God's attributes and his self-revelation in nature and grace, the glorious form in which he everywhere appears to his creatures. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But essentially, what he meant was all his attributes are glorious, exceedingly great, brilliant, supreme. Now that really means that God is not only a God of grace, but his grace is glorious. His truth is glorious. His holiness is glorious. His kindness 
is glorious. And Apostle John is saying that the glory of God resides in Jesus in its fullness. And friends, uh, when we talk about glory, we have to remember in the Old Testament, the Israelites uh, knew it very well that the glory of God it's not something to be meddled with. It's, it's deadly. Under the old covenant, people responded to the holiness of God, to the glorious holiness of God with awe and reverence, in fact, with fear. When Moses begged to see God's glory, God said, you cannot see my face, Moses, for man shall not see me and live. There was a story when the ark of God was being brought to Israel, some men looked inside of it, and as a result, the Lord struck down 50,000 men. You can read that in 1 Samuel 6. And then people uh, cried out, who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy God? See, the glory of God, such a scary and little thing to experience. So that's why the incarnation is shocking. Because the infinite and holy God voluntarily became finite and lived with unholy sinners. It is completely mind-boggling such that it separates Christianity from Islam and Judaism. The Jerusalem Talmud says that if a man claims to be God, he's a liar. And the Quran said, Allah begets not and was not begotten. So the Jews and the Muslims understand how ludicrous it is to think that a holy God would humiliate himself by becoming human. So our holy God who told Moses, for man shall not see me and live, he became incarnate, and people saw Jesus, the incarnate God, and they continued to live. They did not die. The holy God who struck down a man for touching the ark and another 50,000 for looking inside of it become incarnate, and people spit on Jesus, and they did not die. They continued to live. That's why incarnation is shocking. So the proper response to it, we have to see his glory. See, the word see means to gaze intensely, to behold, to contemplate. And John used this special word for the word see, as he did in his uh, epistles, which... Uh, from which we get this English word uh, theater, basically. And we go to theater when we want to watch orchestra, we watch Broadway show, we pay 65 bucks to get a beer reserved seating, right? Because we want to enjoy that special performances. But when we see this glory of God in Jesus, there's something about it that's completely different because it has this profound effect in the viewer. See, if everything was created 
by Christ and for Christ. Why, before we believe in Him, we did not feel the need to see His glory, hear His voice, taste His goodness, or touch His wounded hands and feet and smell His aroma. All our five senses did not catch the gleams of the glory of God. Because our five senses are too easily satisfied by the things of the world that are way much inferior compared to Christ. But now, but now we see His glory and something changed profoundly within us. Because now we are able to see with our eyes, not the physical eyes, but the eyes of our hearts, what is invisible, namely the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Second Corinthians 4, verse 4. We can see with the eyes of our hearts the wonders of God's law, such that our hearts are no longer attached to the glitter of the world because all of it suddenly loses its appeal compared to the glory of God. And the way John described that glory of God in Jesus, it is full of grace and truth. See, God could have said, in the fullness of time, I'm done. This is it. You guys, I created you. You refuse to live for my glory and you live for your own glory. This is it. I'm going to come as a judge and exterminate the human race. He could have come as a judge and executioner. And all of us would be found guilty before him and be sentenced to everlasting punishment. But he did not come in flesh that way. He, the word of God became flesh to be gracious to us. And Jesus reveals a divine glory that is full of grace and truth at the same time. So his grace is truthful, not sentimental, and his truth is grateful, not abrasive, not harsh. And where do we see that most clearly? Jesus is full of grace and truth on his cross. The fullness of grace and the fullness of truth that shines most brightly in the death of Jesus for sinners, like you and me. On the cross, truth is upheld because sin is punished. And on the cross, grace abounds because we don't get punished. Jesus did. When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was also gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment for our sins. In fact, friends, that's why Jesus became flesh, so that nails could be driven through his hands and feet. He had to have flesh in order to die for us. The word became flesh so that the death of Jesus Christ would be possible. So the right response, when we knew that God became flesh for us to die on, our, uh, on the cross for our sins, we have to see that glory because he became a man 
to show that He is real. He wants us to come and see that glory. He's not a myth, but He was God in flesh. He's not a figment of someone's imagination. He actually came to our neighborhood. He was not just an idea of God or picture of God, but He Himself in human form came to us and He wants to get involved in our lives. He's not some distant relative that you may have that you see only once a year or once every couple of years, but He wants to take residence in your life. He wants to be your go-to person in your life. And He identified with our pain, the pain of loneliness, the hurt of rejection, the sadness that you may experience during Mother's Day today. When Jesus became a man, He understood us. He identified with us. He felt our pain and hurt. So friends, do you want to respond like that and come to Him and say, Lord, here I am. I would like to see that glory of yours and be changed by it forever. Let's uh, pray.